If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah to chapter 3. We only fell one verse short last week of finishing chapter 3. But there's no hurry. We have till the Lord comes to finish it, right? So we pick up today in a prophecy about Messiah. If you remember in verse 8, it talked about my servant the branch. That's our Messiah Yeshua. Behold the stone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's the stone cut out without human hands in Daniel 2 that smashes that idolatrous image into powder. That idolatrous image representing the major Gentile world powers that would subjugate Israel and the whole world until the coming of the Messianic kingdom. So that puts our focus squarely on Messiah's return, which is where we pick up in verse 10. In that day. What day? The day of the Lord. That's the day for that last thousand year period from the rapture and the resurrection to the new heavens and the new earth. It includes the seven year tribulation period then the millennial kingship of Messiah on earth, his literal physical reign. But how can a day be a thousand years? That's Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3. A day is to the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Let's go look at that one in 2 Peter 3.8 to see the context. Because it's the very same context of Zechariah. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7 for context. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word. The word that God spoke in Genesis 1 is what still holds the heavens and the earth together. It says are reserved for fire. What's fire a picture of in prophecy? Judgment. God's judgment is coming upon what? The whole world. Until the day of judgment. That's another term for the day of the Lord. And perdition of ungodly men. That word ungodly means lawless. So God's judgment is reserved to be poured out on his children or upon the lawless. Verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So as one thinks back to Hosea chapter 6, which says, after two days he'll raise us up and on the third day we'll live in his sight. How many years roughly between the first and second coming of the Lord? 2,000 2, years. If Messiah died in the year 30, 2,000 years later, 2030, back up seven years for the rapture, it starts to look like, well, it could be soon, huh? But it says... One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What does slack mean? He doesn't really care about it. Careless, sloppy, doesn't really care about it. Concerning his promise to some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
then that makes you think of 1 Thessalonians 5, doesn't it? Some people will be caught like a thief in the night and not others. Hmm, food for thought. Well, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. In that day, says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy is it when you see the Lord of hosts? It's an end times prophecy. It refers to Messiah leading the armies of heaven. That's what the word host mean. Another translation for the word host is armies. When Messiah returns on that white horse in Revelation 19.11, does he return alone? No, or does he return with all the raptured and resurrected saints? Yes, he does. In that day, he says, Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. That phrase, under his vine and under his fig tree, is very, very important. It pictures peace and prosperity. But it also is a term used for the Messianic kingdom. The kind of peace, love, and harmony that's going to rule during that time when Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 says they will not learn war anymore. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25. 1 Kings 4, verse 25. So if, if they're not, is this the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom. So if they're not learning war, then when Satan's released, they have to... And Satan has to teach them more again. If you look at some of the non-biblical books, like the book of Enoch, they say that the fallen angels were who taught man warfare in the first place. It's probably true. Yeah. First Kings chapter 4 verse 25 says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. Why do they include every man under his vine and his fig tree? Because that's the picture of dwelling in safety, not having to fear invasion, not having to fear armies coming in to take your land and to destroy the villages. So it's also in 2 Kings chapter 18. And it's a picture that's used to describe, like I said, the messianic kingdom on earth. 2 Kings 18, verse 31. Sennacherib's men are trying to terrify the people of Judah. And it says in verse 31, this is the bad guy saying, do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says... Oops, you're not there yet. Sorry. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree. And every one of you drink the waters of his own sister. So what is that the promise? If you will bring a gift to me, the king of Assyria, I will let you dwell in peace. The reason I want to look at these scriptures is because of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. At the very beginning of Messiah's ministry, as he's gathering his disciples together, we see an interesting story in John 1, starting in verse 47. Names in the Bible are very important. What's Yeshua mean? 
salvation. What does Nathaniel mean? Gift of God. Gift of God. So verse 47, Yeshua saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. First thing you got to say is, hmm, Yeshua is very intuitive, right? He knows whether someone is sinful or not. He says, here comes an Israelite with no deceit. If you were Nathaniel, what would you be thinking? How do you know me? And that's what he says. How do you know me? Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Why? Because he saw him sitting under fig tree. Not then. He sees him in the Messianic kingdom. Who can know just by looking at you whether you're going to be in the kingdom or not but the king and this is why Nathaniel says I know who you are if you know I'm going to be sitting in the kingdom that's because you're the king you're the son of God you're the king of Israel Yeshua answered and said to him because I said to you I saw you under the fig tree do you believe you'll see greater things than these but Nathaniel didn't need to see greater things who can look at you and know whether you're saved or not but the Savior? So I thought that was really cool. Let's go back to Zechariah. Chapter 4 begins Zechariah's fifth vision. We've only been through three chapters and we've seen four visions. Chapter 4 is the fifth. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who's wakened out of his sleep. How many times does the scripture say, get up, arise? So the angel says, hey, what you doing sleeping? Let's chat. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking. And there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Anybody know what that is? That's a menorah. That's a menorah. Can you picture in your mind a menorah? If not, there's bound to be one around here somewhere. <laughs> Over there, okay. There's one sitting on the table. There's a little difference between that menorah sitting on the table and the real menorah. And that is, you see seven branches of the candlestick, right? And at the top, there's a wick that lights the oil. But all the lamps are fed from one common bowl. There are not seven Holy Spirits. There are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. And what does olive oil represent? The Holy Spirit, yes. And those seven lamps that you see up there with the burning of the oil do represent the sevenfold spirit of God that we see in Isaiah chapter 11. So let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 11 so we can see it with our own eyes. Isaiah 11, verse 
Verse 1 is about Messiah, but so is verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. Shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So those are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. They help us understand what is wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And understanding, it helps us to understand scripture. Spirit of counsel, that is if we will listen to the Holy Spirit, does he lead us into sin or into truth? Into truth and to might. The spirit of knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Hosea chapter 4. The knowledge of the Torah. And of the fear of the Lord. Where else do we see this sevenfold spirit? Besides Zechariah chapter 4. And Isaiah chapter 11. Go to Revelation chapter 4. This prophecy is all about the time of the end. How does Revelation chapter 4 open? With the rapture and the resurrection. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. If you're talking to a Jewish audience when John wrote this and he heard the door opens to heaven they just said what day is it? Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah the feast of trumpets Yom Teruah because that's one of the ancient teachings about this festival the feast of trumpets is that that's the day the door to heaven opens. First voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. The trumpet blast, the shout, come up hither. And there we go. But in verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, which takes us right back to Exodus chapter 19. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God that we looked at in Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 5, and we looked at Isaiah 11 already in Zechariah 4. So let's go to Revelation 5 verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Anybody know who that lamb is? That's Yeshua. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Should that not be better translated, the sevenfold spirit? Of course it should. Yeah. Yeah. And of course that's where we were going. But who contains the sevenfold spirit of God but the Lamb? Yeah. That's why the Holy Spirit is called in places in the New Testament the Spirit of the Lord. wonder where that fell from. I don't know. Don't care. All right. Let us go back to Zechariah chapter 4. Verse 3, two olive trees are by it. Why? What lights the menorah? Olive oil. Where does olive oil come from? Please don't tell me the Popeye cartoons. That would not be gold. Not be, not be right. Nope. 
They come from olive trees. So two olive trees are by it. One at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So the menorah is lit with olive oil and the olive trees provide the oil. Let's take a moment, go up and look at Revelation chapter 11. Wayne, are you going to give away the ending? Maybe. You've already seen I have no self-control. Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. I guess I have to back up to verse 1 for context. But this is at the middle of the tribulation period. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. That's where the Dome of the Rock is. Leave that out. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days closed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So this tells us the two olive trees represent whom? Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets. Who teaches us about Messiah but the law and the prophets? Oh, did I give away too much? Well, let's go back and see. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 4. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who talked with me. Remember the word angel simply means messenger. Somebody delivering the word of God. Saying, what are these, my Lord? Which means clearly they were not two olive trees standing there. He wouldn't have said, what are these? The answer would have been olive trees. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who is Zerubbabel? One who's rebuilding. He's the governor. He's the descendant of David who should be king, but he's a descendant of Kaniah, so he can't be king. So when he comes back from Babylon to the land of Israel, he can't take up a throne, but he represents the civil government. Now this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What does that mean, not by might nor by power? That's right. Israel is not able to resettle the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem by their own might and strength. What power gives them the ability? The Holy Spirit. God gives them the ability. And he wants them to know right offhand, it's not because you're a great leader, Zerubbabel. It's not because of your awesome magnetic personality that this is happening. But it's because this is my word. So let's look. Zerubbabel, a direct descendant of King David. Let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 3. See what we can learn about it. 
First Chronicles chapter 3. Starting in verse 17. Sorry, First Chronicles chapter 3. Starting in verse 17. And the sons of Jeconiah, that's another term for Kaniah. This is the guy whom God says, none of your descendants can sit on the throne of Israel ever again. Or Asir, Shealtiel his son, and Malchiram, Padiah, Shanazar, Jeconiah, Hoshama, and Nedabiah. The sons of Padiah were Zerubbabel. That's the Zerubbabel we're talking about. So he's the grandson of Jeconiah, who was king of Israel, who was cursed by God that none of his descendants could ever sit on the throne again. And this is a problem because Zerubbabel is in the line of Messiah. Does that mean Messiah can't be king in Israel? No, because this is Joseph's line and Messiah was not the son of Joseph. He was adopted by Joseph. When he's adopted by Joseph after his birth, that was a virgin birth, he receives the right to rule without receiving the curse. So God had it all arranged. Hmm. Let's also go to Jeremiah chapter 22. For some reason I put that in brackets. As if to say, well, they already know this, but, well, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Let's find out. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. Ah, oh, this is the curse. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, that's Jeconiah, the same guy we read about in First Chronicles Chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. The son of Jehoiakim, a king of Judah, where the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I'll give you into the hand of those who seek your life, that's the king of Babylon, and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into the land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Boy, it's a good thing Yeshua is not Joseph's son, huh? But, but Mary is also listed as the son of um, Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the son of Jehoiakim, 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 the son of Zerubbabel is also in Mary's genealogy. 
Luke chapter 3, verse 27. But does the curse flow down the line of daughters or through the line of sons? The answer is through the sons. So because Mary's the daughter, she doesn't inherit the curse. So the curse only goes to guys. Huh? Yeah, only guys could reign. We're cursed. Back in those days. Why didn't each one of them just adopt the son so they could be kings and not pass the curse all the When we get to heaven, you can ask the Lord why he didn't do it that way. And also, if you don't mind, back up. What did you God, Jeconiah, what did you do that was so bad? I, I was trying to find it there and I didn't see it. God really didn't like him. What did he do? Yeah, okay. Let's turn back to the... Probably ate pork or something. <laughs> no, no. It was worse than that. Adultery. Yeah, he destroyed all the things having to do with the worship of God and rebuilt all the pagan altars and restored pagan idol worship to the land. He did all that. He just turned them away from God totally. He turned them away from God totally. Okay, so we don't need to go look it up. Let's go to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24. Remember, Josiah restored the worship of God, and his sons and grandsons came along and destroyed it all. Took him back to pagan idol worship. Yeah, wasn't Josiah really the last good king? He was the last good king, yep. Then his sons, boy, they were just... But didn't God even tell him through the prophet that, that it was all going to be bad? Yeah, he wasn't going to punish Josiah, but he said, because of all this that hasn't been done, there is punishment. Mm-hmm. Right, delayed punishment. Yeah, Josiah's generation got skipped over because he was repentant, but his sons were not, so the judgment came. Jeremiah 24, starting in verse 1. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, that's the guy, Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah from the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad which cannot be eaten, they're so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like the good figs, so will I acknowledge those who were carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. That's like Daniel. He went into Babylon voluntarily because God told them to go. So those that obeyed God went voluntarily, and they were treated very well in Babylon. Verse 6, For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I'll bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I'll plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. 
And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they're so bad. Surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remains in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I'll deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence among them till they're consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. So those that were obedient went into Babylon when God said, and those like Jeconiah that stayed behind were leading the people in revolt against God. Hey, Wayne. Yes, sir. It, that's kind of like uh, uh, the rapture, uh, where it says, I have sent them out of this place for their own good. Yep. Yep, it sure is. Ezra, chapter 2. Ezra, chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. So Jeconiah was taken by force into the Babylonian captivity. But here his grandson is going to return. This is Zerubbabel. Now these are the people of the province who came back from captivity. Of those who had been carried away. Whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away to Babylon. And who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel, that's the guy, were Jeshua, also called Joshua, he's the high priest. Nehemiah, the guy who wrote the book of Nehemiah. Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baanah. The number of the men of the people of Israel. You suppose that Mordecai is the same one in the book of Esther? I bet it is. I bet it is. So look at Ezra chapter 3. What happens to Zerubbabel when he gets back? Ezra chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. And when the seventh month had come, what's the seventh month? Tishri. Tishri. The first day of Tishri is the Feast of Trumpets. And the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, that's our guy, the son of Shealtiel, his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Hmm. In what month? Tishri. What month starts in just a week? Tishri. In what month are those three remaining red heifers ready for slaughter? Tishri. Hmm. Interesting. Also in the same chapter, verse 8. 
Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, there's our guy, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua the son of Jehozadak, he's the high priest, Jeshua is, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Let's look also at Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. What prophets? Haggai and Zechariah. How does Zechariah know what was going on? He was right there with them, helping them to rebuild. Go to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah is right after Ezra. Chapter 7. In the book of Ezra, they come back to just rebuild the temple. In Nehemiah, they come back to rebuild the city. And it's written here in the book of Nehemiah, who returned to work on the temple. So we'll start in verse 6 for context. These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, with whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel, that's our guy, were Jeshua, Nehemiah, that's the Nehemiah who wrote the book, Azariah, Ra'amah, Nahamani, Mordecai, there's that same Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Ba'ana. Now let's go to Haggai. Yeah, I know, there's probably more than you ever want to know about Zerubbabel. But he is in the ancestry of Messiah, so he's an interesting guy to know about. And Haggai, of course, is not actually Haggai, it's Chagai. Chag means festival. The A-I at the end means my, plural, so my festivals. And it talks about how the festivals of God, the seven appointed times, relate to the rebuilding of the temple. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius... That is the son of, you know, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. What's the sixth month? Elul. What's the first day of Elul? The beginning of Teshuva, of repentance. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel. So Haggai is prophesying to Zerubbabel. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah said the prophets encouraged them. The son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Uh-oh. 
So if people are saying, hey, we got better things to do, and the prophet says to Zerubbabel, you know what you're supposed to be doing? Get at it. So let's jump down to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. So Zerubbabel didn't return being a great godly leader, did he? He needed some encouragement. He needed a kick in the pants. And the prophet Haggai gives it to him. Go to chapter 2 of Haggai, verses 2 to 4. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So the temple that's rebuilt does not hold a candle to the original temple built by Solomon with the gold, silver, and things provided by King David. Verse 4 says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what are they building the temple for? Is it to impress the world at the beauty of their creation? It's not. It's to bring the people back into a loving servant relationship with the Lord our God. And he doesn't want them to lose sight of that. So go to Matthew 1. So before they built the temple, they would have to kill a red heifer, right? Yeah. They would have to have had the ashes of the red heifer. Yeah? That's right. They could have had some preserved. We just don't know. But if not, they would have had to have killed the red heifer. Somebody said recently, oh, there's lots of red heifers, but there's only been nine in all of recorded history. And there hasn't been one since 70 AD. Long time. So what I want you to see in Matthew 1, verses 12 to 13, is that Zerubbabel is in the genealogy of Messiah. We'll start in verse 11 anyway, because there's Jeconiah, the cursed one. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot its Abner. You have to write that one in, Abner. And Abner begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor. And if we come down to verse 15, Eliu begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Yeshua, who's called the Messiah. So again, if Yeshua had been the actual son of Joseph, he could not have been the king of Israel, could not have been the Messiah. But God had it all worked out. All right, let's go back to Zechariah, because that's probably more about Zerubbabel than you ever wanted to know. 
except that Zerubbabel and Joshua are representing the two trees, the two olive trees. Oh, I shouldn't give that away yet. But they are. Verse 7 says, Who are you, O great mountain? What do they mean by O great mountain? An, an awesome task. An, an overwhelming task. When they went to rebuild the temple, did they come into, shall we say, conflict with the neighbors? Was there a lot of pressure not to rebuild? Oh, yes. A lot of opposition. It says, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, which means the Lord is going to remove the opposition. The Lord is going to pave the way and make the way smooth. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. What's the capstone? It's not the cornerstone. Cornerstone is different. Cornerstone is the foundational stone. So what's the capstone? The last one, the top one, the finishing of it. So this is a task that Zerubbabel and Joshua look at as, we can't do this. And the Lord says, oh yeah, you can do it because I'm going to make it happen. So the capstone is the topmost stone which represents the completion of the project. Verse 8, moreover, what does moreover mean? Above and beyond, there's more to come. You mean rebuilding the temple is not the end all? No, it's not the end all. More to come. What chapter are you on? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 8. Sometimes you forget to tell you where I'm going. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Who's the word of the Lord? Anybody know? Yeshua. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. Ooh. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. That's the meaning of the capstone in verse 7. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now we have a problem with time. Zerubbabel completed the rebuilding of the temple. When it says that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, what kind of prophecy? An end times prophecy. That means there is a descendant of Zerubbabel coming who will complete the millennial temple. That's why Messiah has to be a descendant of Zerubbabel. Even if it's through Mary and not through Joseph. Mm. This completion takes place four years after the prophecies began. Four years after the prophecies began and 14 years after the rebuilding began. So the rebuilding begins... And then stops. And ten years go by. And the prophets come and say. Time for a kick in the pants. And they get on it. And in four years. They get it completed. 
You think it's going to take Messiah that long to rebuild the temple when he comes? No. Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see. What seven? The seven candlesticks, the seven spirits, which are the seven eyes of the Lord. Yeah. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. What's a plumb line? It's what? It's a measurer. It's a way to make sure that the construction is straight and it's done properly and correctly. Yep, you hang it from the top, it hangs down to the bottom to show you a straight line. The bottom line is it's a tool of construction. And the Lord rejoices to see Zerubbabel get back at it so they can get it completed. He says, these are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. People go, wait a minute, the Lord has seven eyes? Well... Let's go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Seven's the number of what? Perfection or completion? Yep, the number of perfection. Revelation 5, 6, which describes the sevenfold spirit of God also, tells us what it represents. Um, yes, um, Do we know the descendant of Zerubbabel who's going to rebuild? Do we know what? Do we know that the descendant of Zerubbabel who's going to rebuild the Messiah. Yeah, his name is Yeshua. Our That's Messiah. Right, because it's going to be the perfect... Okay, thank you. Yep. <laughs> it's going to come up in the next couple chapters. Okay. Yep. Ah, oh, we, we lost the suspense building. Okay. But okay. <laughs> Revelation 5.6 And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures... In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits are just different ways of describing the Lord's knowledge and power. So what goes on in this world that the Lord doesn't know? Nothing. So in verse 10 it means the Lord is glad in his own heart that the rebuilding of the temple is finally going to get done. So back to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? Zechariah still doesn't know what they are. Hmm. So let's keep reading. And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he said to me, Do you not know what these are? So I said, No, my lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Again, let's go back to Revelation 11.4. Revelation 11.4. 
What purpose does the menorah serve? It gives light. It gives light. So the source of the light for you and I is what? Messiah is the light of the world, but what teaches us about Messiah? The law and the prophets. Right? The law and the prophets. So in Revelation 11, 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth refers to the two witnesses that will prophesy for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period from the temple in Jerusalem. Let me think if I can. Okay. <laughs> these two olive trees are the two witnesses that will prophesy from the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Who are Moses and Elijah? Who are Moses and Elijah? What makes you say that? Let's go to Matthew 17 and look. <laughs> People argue, oh, this, this has to be Enoch and so and so. Well, let's ask the Lord. He tells us in Matthew 17. Matthew 17. We'll start with the last verse of Matthew 16 to give us a running start. Oops, I got a question out there. Let me see. You can go to meeting. Could that plumb line in Zechariah 4.10 represent Torah? Of course it can. Verse 28, Matthew 16, 28. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Boy, if the non-Messianic rabbis haven't had fun with that verse. Oh, and which of the disciples are still alive today? You think this was the word of God? It doesn't say we'll not taste death until the Son of Man comes, does it? It says until they see the Son of Man come. In chapter 17, verse 1, here's the vision. No, after six days... Wonder why God puts that in there. He doesn't have any relevant details. When does the day of the Lord come? After six thousand years, after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother. On the word of two or three witnesses, let all things be established. Let them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, just like in Ezekiel forty three when the Lord returns. And his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Who returns with Messiah? Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. In Revelation, we learn that the two witnesses that are, that are testifying and prophesying from the Temple Mount in the first three and a half years of the tribulation are first of all prophets. Were Moses and Elijah prophets? Yes. They have power to withhold the rain. Which of the prophets of old withheld the rain? Elijah. Elijah. And to strike the people with the plagues as often as they wanted. Who brought the plagues in Egypt? Moses. Verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make your three tabernacles. Why would he want to make three tabernacles? Which festival teaches the coming of the Lord to establish the kingdom? Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. 
one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Why hear him? What's that refer back to? To Deuteronomy chapter 18. Keep a finger in Matthew. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. On the left-hand column of the left-hand page. Is it? Your Bible's defective. (laughs) No, it's not. Deuteronomy 18, start in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. You shall what? You shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they've spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from amongst your brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. Is that John 14? And the words that you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Is that a threat? That's a threat. That's why it says back there, hear him. So let's go back there. Matthew chapter 17. Wouldn't it have been nice if I kept a note, a note there, a finger or something? Oh, I did. There it is. Okay. Verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Yeshua came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Yeshua commanded them, saying, Tell the what? Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. In a vision they had seen the return of the Lord. The second coming. And the two witnesses with them were Moses and Elijah. Let's go also to the book of John, chapter 1, verse 45. John 1, 45. John 1, 45. Are we there? Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Nazareth was in the Galilee. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't where all the great rabbis taught and where the temple of God stood. These were common people, everyday people, workmen. So he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But the point is, verse 45, when Moses wrote in the law and also in the prophets, 
He's saying that the law and the prophets testify of what? That Yeshua of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, the promised Son of God. And go to Acts chapter 24. Verse 14. It's testimony by the Apostle Paul as to his attitude toward the law and the prophets. Always there growing up he taught, forget the law, it's done away with, gone, not for us. Law and the prophets, eh, who needs them? But that's not what he says. Let's look, Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you, he's giving his profession before Felix, the governor, that according to the way, in Acts 9, the believers were first called the way, which they call a sect, which means just another sect of Judaism. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written where? In the law and in the prophets. Paul says, I believe every word of it. Because they teach about Messiah. Acts chapter 28. We're getting perilously close to Paul losing his head. Acts 28, verse 23. So when he appointed him a day, him is Paul. Many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Yeshua from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. What did Paul use to prove that Yeshua is the Messiah? The law of and the prophets. Why didn't he grab his 1611 King James Bible? He hadn't written it yet. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Verse 21. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Meaning the righteousness of God that you don't acquire through works of the law. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Yeshua the Messiah. To all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. So Paul says the law was not made to be a way of salvation. The law and the prophets are to point us to Messiah Yeshua. Through whom salvation comes. Is that pretty cool? Now let's go back to Zechariah. Chapter 5. I wonder if I made any notes on five. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Chapter five is impossible to understand if you don't have a good background in the scriptures. Chapter five says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. First of all, this is Zechariah's sixth vision. And he sees a flying scroll. Flying means 
swiftness. And the scroll is the book of the law, which testifies to God's judgment against sin. So in chapter 5, somebody is going to come under God's condemnation for their sins. And let's see who. Verse 2. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and it's with 10 cubits. How many of you are going, so? Well, that's the size of the sanctuary door. So they've just completed the temple in the vision. And this flying scroll comes out of the temple. It's a pretty big scroll too, isn't it? Verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse. Curse for what? For sin. This is God's judgment going forth. And where did it go? This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. The whole earth is going to come under God's judgment. But I thought it was only Israel that God ever judges. No, no, not so. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. And every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. Hmm. That word curse is also a word for an oath. So this means that God has promised judgment and judgment will come. But why every thief on this side and every perjurer on that side? The thief is a sin against your fellow man. Perjury is a sin against God. So it represents the two sides of the commandments. Every commandment is either to love the Lord your God or to love your neighbor as yourself. So this scroll is as big as it is because, well, how have we treated God? And how have we treated our neighbors as ourselves? Hey, maybe we should have sung the Vayahop to this morning, huh? Oh, boy. What does it mean shall be expelled? Every thief shall be expelled and every perjurer shall be expelled. Does that mean welcomed into the kingdom of God? Or does that mean cast out into outer darkness? Mm. The meaning of the curse coming out of the temple at the point that it is, is that up until now, most of the world has not suffered God's judgment. But that doesn't mean it's not coming. The, re the fact that he uses a word that means curse and oath is God said it's coming. It's coming. Don't let yourself get into the mindset that, well, since it hasn't come yet, it's not going to. Up until now, are you talking about our current time? Or are you talking about this, the time? I'm about to answer that question. Okay. As we turn to Acts chapter 17. Remember, the focus on this portion of Zechariah is on the days to come. Mm -hmm. So Acts chapter 17, verse 30. 
truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. That's what this scroll is trying to tell us, that up until the time that Messiah was crucified, buried, resurrected, and the disciples were sent out to take the gospel message to the whole world, God didn't pour out his judgment on most of the world on a regular basis. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Who to repent? Everybody, everywhere. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. And that's the meaning of the scroll. God's judgment of the world is coming. In righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance to, of this to all by raising him from the dead. So this commandment came to the world at the resurrection. This judgment has the, come to the world. The commandment is, this is the time to repent. Right. God looked at you and, and did not judge you. Now that the crucifixion and the atonement has been made, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Isn't yep, or face the judgment. Paraphrase. Yep. So let's go back there. There's more to come in chapter 5. Verse 4 is going to answer Nancy's question of when does that judgment fall upon the whole world? Verse 4, I'll send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. So the thief is the sin against man. Let's go first to Leviticus chapter 19. So these are just representative. On the Ten Commandment tablets, do you remember that half of it was about God, half of it was about your relationship to man? Yep. When they asked the Lord, what's the greatest of the commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's just the two sides. Leviticus 19. Verse 12. Leviticus 19, verse 12, is about swearing falsely on the name of God. So we'll start in 11. You shall not steal. That was the first side of the scroll. Nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So these two verses support the curses on this scroll. Exodus 20. And the word scroll there is not the normal word for scroll. It's the word for Megillah, which means the whole thing. So this scroll is just representative of all of the law. Exodus chapter 20. How many of his kids watched the Megillah Gorilla Show? Yeah. Exodus 20, verse 15 says, What you shall not steal. 
Look at verse 7 of Exodus 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you take an oath on the name of God and you don't mean it or you don't keep it, what have you done to God's name? Treated it like it was no big thing. So let's go to Romans 6.23. We've all sinned, we know that, but let's go look at it. Our God is the only name used in cursing around the world. Yep. As far as I know, you're right. Um, the Hebrew word for curse is Allah. Yeah. Sounds right. Yeah, not a surprise, is it? And the word for terror is Hamas. Yeah. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life and Messiah Yeshua our Lord. But what does that verse begin with? What word? Four. Can you really start with four? Let's back up a verse. But now, having been set free from sin, that is when you got saved, your sins were wiped away. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness in the end, meaning the goal, everlasting life. How did we get from the wages of sin is death to holiness and the goal of which is everlasting life. Set free from sin. We were set free from sin when we got saved. We did what? What's that word? Repented. And that was real, not, not a make-believe repentance that we see so Yep, real and not make-believe. Revelation 22. <coughs> Verses 12 to 15. That's awful big to put in a t-shirt. I may have to put half on the front and half on the back. But it begins, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to what? His work. Your actions will decide what rewards you do or don't get. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Originally in the Hebrew, it's I'm the Aleph and the Tav. You guys realize Revelation was written in Hebrew, right? The beginning and the end, the first and the last. We say it many times, but let's prove it. Keep a finger here. Let's go back to Isaiah 41 verse 4. Isaiah 41, verse 4. I have still so many people that say, Yeshua is not God. Let's come back to Isaiah, what? Chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord. See how Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav from Exodus chapter 3. 
I am the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The Lord is the first and the last. Come back to Revelation 22.13. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So Yeshua is the Lord that we're talking to and about in Isaiah chapter 41. He is the Lord all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. And verse 14 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments. The traditional church just throws up all over these words and says, No, that's wrong. The Bible's wrong. We're not supposed to be keeping his commandments. But which is right, doctrine or Bible? Blessed are those that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life from enter through the gates into the city. Does this teach that we're saved by works? The answer is no. The scripture says if you love the Lord, if you have faith in the Lord, you will be obedient to the Lord. And that's what this says. Your obedience to God's commandments is the evidence of your faith. It's not what produces salvation. Salvation produces the works. Verse 15 says, But outsider dogs, which refer to homosexuals, not four-legged animals, and sorcerers, which includes drug abuse, pharmakia, and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. Folks, is this telling us that you will not find amongst the saved community in heaven these kind of sins. That's correct. You will find people who have repented of these, but unrepentant lawlessness, you won't find that in the kingdom. Back to Zechariah. Chapter 5. When it says at the end of verse 4, it will remain in the midst of his house and consume it with his timber and stones. Is talking about God's judgment, right? God's judgment is pictured as a consuming fire. So verse 5 begins another vision. So chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 was a vision of the End times judgment is coming upon the whole world. Would you like to see another description of that judgment? Go to Isaiah 66. <laughs> Isaiah 66. Is in the number 12 divided by 2 but then multiplied. Isaiah 66, verses 14 to 17, is the judgment that will the earth will endure when Messiah returns. When you see this, God comforting Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, his protection and blessing shall be known to his servants and his indignation, that is his wrath being poured out, to his enemies. Which do you want to be on that day? Mm -hmm. His servant. 
For behold, the Lord will come with fire, that's judgment, with his chariots like a whirlwind, which is the speed of the judgment. To render his angry anger with fury, which is the intensity of the judgment. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, that's Revelation 19, the sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God. The Lord will judge all flesh. So what does he judge our actions against? His word. His word. The Torah. Yeah. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. Is idolatry still bad? Yes. Eating swine's flesh. A swine is a pig. Is eating a ham sandwich a problem? Yes. Eating swine's flesh and the abomination Leviticus 11 says if you eat the unclean foods, it makes you abominable in the sight of God. And the mouse, which includes the rabbits and them kind of things, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So does the Lord slay them so that they can go to heaven more quickly and enjoy their eternal glory? No. But it says who's going to be judged? All flesh. That's what Zechariah chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 is trying to tell us is that God's judgment is coming upon the whole world. Because too many people think that God's judgment only comes against the Jews. And the Bible says, oh, don't think that way. So verse 5 of Zechariah 5 begins the seventh vision. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now. That's an interesting construction of the Hebrew sentence. It's a command. But the word now is the word please. So it's a command, lift your eyes, please. Meaning it's for your benefit to see this. Don't miss it. Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. That is, it's also coming out of the temple. Just as the scroll did. So I ask, what is it? You know, that's what the name manna is, right? Mana. what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. Isn't that nice? A basket is going forth. No, it's not a good thing. The basket represents greed. Greed. It's exactly right. Measuring basket. We could have said an ephah, but to say a basket just sounds better to yeah, people. We, may, we understand that better. Yeah. It represents what? I'm sorry. Greed. G-R-E-E-D. It's going to be about false measures. How we use one basket size when we're buying grain from you and another when we're selling to you. It's kind of like putting your thumb on the scales when nobody's looking when you're weighing things to sell. Yeah, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But the technical term is an ephah, and you know ephah is a measure of dried grain. So it's an ephah that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. He's saying all the people in the earth are greedy. They care about themselves. They don't care about their neighbors. They're stealing from their neighbors. They're cheating their neighbors. They're letting their neighbors go hungry. 
so that they can have more, more, more. I'm sure that doesn't describe the world today, right? No. no. This is their resemblance throughout the earth, meaning this is what the people look like to God. Verse 7, here is a lead disc lifted up. The lead disc represents the weights and measures. And in biblical days, everybody knew what an ephah of wheat would cost. So when you bring your grain to the dealer, he's going to give you that amount of shekels for an ephah of grain. Which is why he makes the ephah much bigger when you're bringing the grain to sell. So that he pays less per ounce. And then when he goes to sell it, he uses a much smaller ephah. That's cheating people. So here's a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Let's defer the woman for a moment. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. Does the Bible ever mention false weights and measures? Oh, yeah. How does God feel about false weights and measures? Now worse, how does God feel about those who call themselves his children using false weights and measures? Proverbs 11.1 1 says, Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When you see that word abomination, what it should confer to your mind is make you think of idolatry. He's saying that dishonest scales are as disreputable and as foul-tasting to God as idolatry itself. Because God commands just weights and measures, and we say, no, uh-uh, we're going to cheat people. We have set aside the word of God. So it's like we're chasing after idols. Proverbs 16 Verse 11. Proverbs 16, 11 says, Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work, but it actually means are his concern. His concern is for every one of the weights in the bag, are they honest, are they true? You might step back and say, well, isn't it okay to cheat some people? No, it's not. Proverbs 20, verse 23. Diverse weights, that is using a different one to buy from the one you use to sell, are an abomination to the Lord. And dishonest scales are not good. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Verses 35 and 36. Leviticus 19, verses 35 and 36. 
You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. A hen measures liquids, an ephah measures dry goods. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why does God add that? He says over and over through here, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's the authority that he speaks with. Yes, absolutely. Just as he brought judgment upon the Egyptians for their poor treatment of the children of Israel, he can bring judgment upon them. It's like when you tell your kids something, they go, why? And you go, because I said so. This is the Lord saying, because I said so. Deuteronomy 25. If God says something once, it's important. What if he says it over and over again? Then we should consider ourselves warned, shouldn't we? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 to 16. You shall not... Whoops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a chance. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So he started the first Bureau of Standards. <laughs> he did. Ezekiel chapter 45. Ezekiel chapter 45. Verses 9 to 10. Are you ready? Thus says the Lord God. Enough, O princes of Israel. Remove violence and plundering. Execute justice and righteousness and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. You shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, and an honest bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, so the bath contains one-tenth of a homer, and the ephah one-tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according to the omer. The shekel shall be twenty geras, twenty shekels, twenty-five shekels, and fifteen shekels shall be your mina. In other words, honest. You ever seen the movie Lady Jane? About... Jane, who became Queen of England for a few days. One of her big complaints as she comes to the throne is she picks up a coin that's supposed to be a particular measure, like a pound. And she says, this is a penny. Somebody said, no, 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 it's not a penny, it's a pound. She's going, no, it's not. 
what is this? Because the coins had been, oh, shall we say, subject to inflation. What's your dollar worth today? Versus what it was on the day that you were born. Does anybody know? It is so minuscule, right? God says that is an abomination. Go to the book of Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. Verses 4 to 6. Amos chapter 8 verses 4 to 6. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. Saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large? Falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. You see what God is saying? The poor people, when they come to buy, they get wheat that's not worth eating, and not nearly the measure they're paying for. And God says, how dare you swallow up the poor and the needy that way. And Hosea chapter 12 I told you, God talks about this a lot. Hosea chapter 12, verses 7 to 8. A cunning Canaanite. Well, the same word for Canaanite is the word for merchant. So we're talking here about dishonest merchants. Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I've become rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. What he's trying to get at is you got rich by cheating people, but you think that God's okay with it. That you're going to be... He's prospered you. He's prospered you. Oh, boy. If that doesn't bring up a lot of points. Yeah. Lastly, on this point, the book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah, who is like God? Verses 10 to 14. We may as well start in verse 9 because that tells us why we're going to read verse 10. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. Meaning, why is judgment coming? Verse 10 Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? In other words, your dishonest weights and measures is going to bring God's judgment down on your head. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? 
For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Hmm. Sounds like God's going to take vengeance on those who are cheating and stealing. Because that's exactly what it means. Now let's go back to Zechariah to verse 7 of chapter 5. Because there was a woman sitting inside the basket. First thing you got to ask is this a midget? Because how does she fit in the basket? But then you have to remember it's a vision. What does a vision in prophecy represent? It represents a religious system. This woman represents the false religious system that encourages people to lie, cheat, and steal because it's okay with God. God's commandments, oh, that was for them back there. That's not for you. So we can lie, cheat, and steal, and God will be just fine with it. No, that's not the case. So the woman represents false religion, which is idolatry. If we go to Revelation 17, we're going to see the woman sitting in the, in the basket. Revelation 17. Verses 1 through 6. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Which means this false religious system sits on many different nations around the world, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So it's a religious system that the kings of the earth had to bow down to through the ages. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, so it's a vision, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that represents the kingdom of the Antichrist from the book of Daniel, which was full of names of blasphemy. That's like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Having seven heads and ten horns. Remember, three of the horns were torn out by the Antichrist back in the book of Daniel. The woman was arrayed in purple. Purple is what? Royalty. And scarlet. Scarlet is religion. So it's a religious system that also sits in, how do I not say, the Pope being the king of, yeah, okay. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, which are great wealth. Having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, which is the sins that she has taught the nations of the world. On her head a on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery. What's mystery mean? Deeper. Deeper meaning than what we've seen before. Babylon the Great. Meaning this idolatrous false religious system goes all the way back to Babylon. Back to the Tower of Babel, to Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. 
the mother of harlots because other false religious systems have peeled off from Babylon. The mystery religion of Babylon was the Madonna, it was called. That was a term long before Mary. The worship of the mother and child, which was Samarimus and Tammuz, not Mary and Yeshua originally. And of the abominations of the earth. So this false religious system, which is sun god worship and moon goddess worship, has permeated down through the ages through many nations, many religious systems. You saw it in Egypt, you saw it in Greece, you saw it in Rome. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. What are saints according to Revelation 14.12? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. How many people were put to death by the Inquisition because they kept the Sabbath? Countless multitudes. Because they wouldn't eat pigs. Because they wouldn't keep the sun god festivals that were introduced into what was originally biblical Christianity, if you want to call it that. With the blood of the martyrs of Yeshua, when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Okay, back to Zechariah, chapter seven. Oh, chapter five, verse seven. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is the woman sitting inside the basket. The basket represents the false weights and measures. So this woman sitting in the basket is allowing and teaching people to set aside the commandments of God and follow after things that God considers an abomination. Verse 8, then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. How does God feel about this false religious system teaching people to break God's commandments? The answer is not good. So the he, is that the messenger or angel pushing the... Yeah, the representative of God pushes her into the false system of weights and throws the lead measure down upon the basket. Don't want to see it. It's wickedness. It's horrible just to look at. Is this before the answer? Um, the answer is yes. It's been going on since the Tower of Babel. Tower permeating. Tower yep. It culminates in the Antichrist in his kingdom. But he will destroy the false religious system and say, you worship nobody but me. Oh, look at the time. Our time is up. We'll pick up next time, if there is a next time, in Zechariah chapter 5, verse 9.